very warm welcome to you from Equa Marketing. This presentation is brought to you by Equa.com, a leader in digital marketing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Growing Dentist podcast series. Today, I'm delighted to have Kerry Strain with me. Kerry is a renowned consultant who has helped hundreds of dentists, dentists and dental practices grow their practice uh, over the last 30 years. Kerry, welcome. Welcome to Growing Dentist today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Okay, why don't we get started by you telling us about yourself, your story, and how did you, you know, start helping dentists? I know you are an accountant by training. Yeah, that's correct. I, I could never have imagined that 30 years ago I'd forecast and be able to predict that I would have had the pleasure of working with over 6,000 practices, speaking with 100,000 staff and practice owners over the years and work with the finest leading dental supply companies in the industry. I started back when I was young, back in the early 60s, living at home with my mother and my father, Harry and Terry Strain, and I'm Carrie. How about that? My brother, Larry, nor my sister, Sherry, uh, could never even imagine we'd be in the dental industry as a family, but it started out because my dad was a CPA in Sacramento. His granddad and great uncle were the first accountants in Sacramento back in the 20s. So we all just moved into that career path pathway, and I knew when I was a kid I just wanted to be like my father because he was the greatest guy I'd ever met. Um, blessed to have had him in my life for all of his 86 years that I've been alive. Wow. I was 50 when he passed away. But that being said, as a CPA, he had the uh, pleasure of meeting with industry leaders, political leaders, social leaders, and just very involved in the community, and I wanted to be like him. So I graduated from college in 1978, went to work with my dad and my brother in our accounting firm, and that continued to grow, and everything was going along just fine. And then in 1986, over lunch, one of my dentists, who I was preparing their financial statements and tax returns for, He'd asked me to come join him for lunch to talk about ways to increase his profitability. And I told him I didn't know anything about that. I said, I just prepare your financial statements and tax returns. And he says, well, let's get together and see what you can shed a light on. And as we got together that day, I, I looked at his P&L for June 30th and at that time of the year, and uh, it was August. And as we sat down and we looked at his profitability that he was experiencing, um, I asked him why he wanted to increase it. And he says, well, someday we're going to be 50. Well, he and I are both now in our 60s. And it was kind of a kind of interesting reflection. When I got done looking at the expenses, there were none to cut. So I asked him, I said, doctor, if, if we can't cut expenses, you're going to have to increase collections. And not knowing how that was done, I, I just asked him very casually. I said, when's the last time you raised your fees? He goes, a few months ago. I said, well, why not do it again? He goes, well, I can't do that. I said, why not? He goes, I don't know. And he didn't have a good answer. He really didn't understand how to own and operate his business. I'm not so sure that uh, we as a CPA firm really understood how to own and operate ours. We did the best we could. So I continued to probe, and I asked him, I said, well, how do you find out the work you're going to do on a patient? He said, well, that's simple. I do a comprehensive exam. I said, now we're getting places, because I had to think about onboarding an accounting client, and I wanted to know how he onboarded a patient. So he said, I do a comprehensive exam, and I said, well, that, that makes sense, and how do you prioritize the work you're going to do? He said, well, that's simple. 
emergencies first, then soft tissue, then hard tissue. I said, well, good. Let, let's break it down into those categories. Emergencies. How many times a year will the average patient come in for an emergency? And he laughed and he chuckled and he said, well, not very often. I said, how's that? He goes, well, we do comprehensive exams. We don't have a lot of patients that have emergencies that we have to follow up with. And I said, okay, well, let's move on to the next thing. What's that? He goes, well, soft tissue, my hygienist, seeing you for your cleanings, et cetera. And I said, well, how many times a year will the average patient come in to see your hygienist? He goes, well, I bought an older person's practice. On average, they're going to come three times a year. I said, good, I can live with that. I could hang my hat on that concept, man. And I said, well, how many patients do you have? To which he replied, do you mean active or inactive? I said, how would I know? He goes, I'm not so sure I know. I said, well, tell me how many you think you have. He says, I think I have 3,000 active patients. I said, now we're getting somewhere. If you have 3,000 active patients and the demand's three visits a year per patient, the growth demand from that patient pool is 9,000 appointments. Do you understand that? He goes, yes, I do. I said, what's your supply? He said, how do you figure that out? I said, how many patients a day does your hygienist see? He goes, they see eight patients a day. Full-time hygienist, four days a week? Yep. 32 appointments a week. And I, and I was just doing the math. One hygienist, 32 appointments a week, 50 weeks a year, 1,600 appointments. I said, doctor, how many hygienists do you have? He said, I have one. And the light went off in my mind. I said, how can that be? He said, what do you mean? I said, if the demand's 9,000 appointments for your 3,000 people that come three times a year, and the supply is only 1,600 appointments, Who's seeing the other 7,400 hygiene appointments? Right. He put his burger down. He looks at me. He says, my God, nobody's ever asked me that question. I said, Doc, it's just supply and demand. You're not taking care of your patients. And he goes, well, do you know what's scary? I said, I'm afraid to ask. He says, over 2,000 of my patients have insurance. Now, this is 1986. We were 30. I said, well, what does that mean if over 2,000 of your patients have insurance? He goes, they get two free cleanings a year. I looked at him and I said, my dear friend, you cannot even give it away. And he goes, you got to help me. And that's how it started. And he, he introduced me to others who introduced me to others. And that was 1986. I started to get introduced to more dentists who wanted this advisory service on managing the things that I was learning about that I could help them manage. And I studied all the greats at the time practice management experts, and there was this way versus this way versus this way versus this way, and I realized you, you can't just have a one-size-fits-all. You have to fit it into the unique values and philosophy of an owner, and as we started to meet more and more dentists and oral surgeons and orthodontists, you name it, we, we had a growing accounting firm. Then the next year, my dad retires, 1987, and things were cruising. My brother Larry and I were running the practice, and this niche was growing, and in 1989, on June, in the month of June, Larry didn't wake up one day, and he passed away at age 39 of a disease that dentists should be treating. And you know what that is? Sleep apnea. So, I was at a point in my life where I was I was truly a recent uh, divorced father of four. The kids had moved 500 miles away. It was an interesting time in my life a lot of reflection, a lot of uh, emptiness, to be honest with you. Just, you know, being a full-time parent and having that change, that was interesting. Thank God 
dentistry appeared in my life. Because I couldn't have made it as a professional golfer, so I gave up that attempt. And I just went to work meeting as many people as I could and helping them learn to manage the patient base so they could grow the volume of that number to their potential and enjoy its operations. And I would put in tremendous amounts of time because it gave me so much tremendous fulfillment. And eventually, I sold the accounting firm to the CPAs I work with in the early 90s. Met an amazing life partner and my current wife, Olivia. We met in 1991, and she left her very successful real estate career and residential real estate and joined with us here at Strain Consulting to be the backbone of the company, the research on all the behavior and values assessments and personality profiling information. She has her degrees in psychology and communication. And we know that a business owner has got to be more than just the guy that writes the checks. He's got to be somebody that the team looks up to, the patients look up to. And, you know, we are the parent in the professional relationship with our employees. We have all the responsibilities and none of the rights. And we started growing and growing in the state of California. We had a tremendous relationship with Patterson Dental that began in 1991 and that grew to a statewide basis by 95 and met with the president of the company, invited us to work with them nationally, which we began. And that, that caused us to grow our influence throughout the United States. And then um, at the end of the century there, 1999, the gentleman I reported to migrated over to Henry Schein. And we met them in 2001 and have had a relationship with them training their sales force. Uh, a lot of people have benefited from the Henry Schein practice analysis, which I was one of the two gentlemen that created that, and it's, it's been a tool that my firm's had the pleasure of conducting over 25,000 teleconsults with doctors over the country over the years just to help them see where they are, find out where they want to go, and give them strategies that they can embrace and move forward with. And that's kind of the big picture of how it all started. It makes a ton of sense. I mean, your comments about what you went through in your life with your brother's passing and you know the changes in your own family and you know getting divorced... I bet you realized, you know, money is not the only thing that's important, right? It's time and purpose, uh, you know, relationships, meaning, you know, all of those other things in addition to money kind of becomes important. And I guess as people grow and go through these things, um, you know, it, it defines what they want out of life, right? I mean, um, absolutely. I mean, think about it. On our deathbed, are we going to think back about how many dollars we have in the bank account or how right. many lives that we touched? Right. You know, there's an equation for how much money you need to make in life. Do you know what that is? No. One dollar more than you want. One dollar more than you You see, once, once a want is satisfied, that want no longer motivates. Do you ever buy a new car? Right. right. You probably did all your research, but as soon as you bought it, did you keep doing the research? No. No, the want was satisfied. So here's the question. You know, we, we even had a and we have annual retreats for our clients. We have one coming up on March 10th and 11th in Pebble Beach, California. It'll be packed. But a few years ago, we were there in Pebble Beach, and we said, you know what you need to know? And they go, what? You better know your number. Recent study in the Wall Street Journal that came out earlier this week said people age 55 to 65 today have five times the amount of debt than the same age group did 20 years ago. People age 65 today have less saved than people did 20 years ago. And if anybody thinks they're going to make it off Social Security from the United States government, 
that's thirty thousand bucks a year. When you got a two income household and you have you know, maybe you have a dental assistant working with somebody or a dental hygienist married to somebody and that two income household is earning eighty to one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Those people psychologically are used to earning and making that amount and spending that amount. Right. And they're going to need to continue to fuel their cash flow with that amount. So if they haven't saved, retirement's not an option. Earlier today, I was on the phone with a client of mine in New England. The father is my age. The son is my daughter's age. And he's a dentist working in the practice. I said to the son, whose base salary is 100 grand, I said, so what's the comp plan? And when I determined the comp plan, I projected that this boy is going to make 200 grand this year. So you know what I told him? I said, live on the first 100 you get, and on the additional 100 you're going to make, which you'll only get about 65 of because you're going to lose the balance in taxes. I said, here's what you're going to do with it. Do you have any college debt? He goes, no, I was fortunate. My dad paid for everything. I said, thank him every day. Thank your mom and your dad every day. So on that incremental additional 100 grand worth of wages, which will be about 60, 65,000 in net cash to you, take 20% of it and spend it. Enjoy it. 12,000 a year. And on the other 50, save it. Right. And if you do that over 30 years with about 0% return on your savings, You'll have a million five, I think, saved up. And that won't be enough. So plan on working until you're 70 or 80. So these are just the economic realities. And nobody likes to talk about them, but we do with our clients all the time. When I'm building a strategic plan for a client, there's two things I need to know. How much money do you need to make? What is your want? And how much time do you want to invest in your business? Your business doesn't control your life. It's got to support your life. So if we can build a business model where you're working 30 to 32 hours clinically a week and you're putting in the required six to eight hours managerially per week, you're going to have a 40-week job. And believe me, you're going to want to put forth that effort with laser-sharp precision so you minimize your mistakes over time and have a business that supports your life in ways you never could have imagined. We always say it's the three Fs. You want to have fun. You want to be fulfilled and you want to make sure your financial goals are attained. And when that has, happens, you're going to be excited about going to work every day. Right. It's, oh, that's amazing. So it starts by understanding how much time they want to put in and where they want to end up financially. That's the starting point. I, yeah. If you're not charting that out in the beginning, you're, you're, you could end up committing to a strategy that won't be satisfactory personally. Why would you do that? Right. It's kind of interesting. I do marketing and I talk to a lot of my clients and obviously I don't do consulting, but a lot of times they haven't thought about this very clearly. And a lot of times they're like, I want a big practice. I want to have 10 employees and you know, two associates. But, but once you talk to them for five more minutes, you realize that's not really what they want because they don't want the headaches. They don't want, you know, dot, dot, dot. But because they don't think it through, they end up in the wrong path almost sometimes. You know, most people yeah. don't know themselves very well. Don't you find that to be the case? Right, right. I mean, you know, it's strange, you know, besides my accounting background and, and and you know, I've consulted with, I mean, I, I've probably prepared well over four or 5,000 tax returns, 10,000 sets of financial statements from 1978 to 1992. 
I've represented clients in front of the Internal Revenue Service, the various state agencies and the federal agencies. and um, I know the numbers well, but at Strain, each one of my consultants and my practice development coaches are also certified professional behavioral analysts. And we're values analysts. So in, in the world of understanding values, we categorize values in six categories. The acronym's to asset. So someone's interest in learning is your theoretical value. Your interest in assessing the return on the investment of time, money, energy, and resources is utilitarian value. A stands for aesthetics, the beauty of your surrounding. Could be the beauty of the way you write up a treatment plan or write an e email or maybe organize your underwear. Social value. Being part of a team, connecting with others, is the for the S. The I is the individualistic value. Do you want to do it alone? Be you know having this uh, uh, very independent life and be seen as a always winning. And last is traditional value. You're interested in like a religious philosophy or way of life. I well, every person has two of the six that are high. These are your values that very much drive you. Two are that in the middle and two that are low. Well, my high two are utilitarian, right? I'm always assessing the return on the investment of time, money, energy, and resources. But surprisingly, the other one that really drives me is social. I love being right. part of a team. Now, I'm also an extrovert, right? You probably know that. Right. I'm a, there's two types of extroverts. There's task-driven extroverts, so there's people-driven extroverts. Naturally, the highest trait I have is a task-driven extrovert. My need is to direct. My need is to get results. My second highest, though, is the people-driven extroversion. I need to connect, and, and I like that a lot. So when I went to college back in 1974, I, did a, I took a behavioral assessment survey, and they said, uh, young man, you should not be in the accounting department. I said, well, I'm going to work with Harry, and that's all there is to it, and I did. So it's very, you know, when we look at what drives us as people, you, you really got to understand who you are. Not only, you know, what, we all speak English or some of us speak other languages. and We have a way of thinking. Some of us are optimists, right? And some are pessimists. You know where that comes from? Right. Your mother. Martin Seligman's a very famous behavioral psychologist, and you can look him up, S-E-L-I-G-M-A-N. And he's written books on how to raise optimistic children. He's done TED Talks. And he says we develop uh, our, our optimism or pessimism from, um, from the development of our explanatory style, how we've learned to explain the world to ourselves. And uh, we always seek out one adult to be the primary educator on that. And in most cases, it's the mother. And, and it's much healthier to be an optimist than a pessimist. Pessimists live uh, shorter lives, have raise children who get into trouble and have a higher divorce rate. So there's there's a case for optimism. And, who and all of this ties into finding out who we are. Right. Who's the person who, who gave the TED Talks and uh, if people want to Google him? That, that, that wrote this book? Who's the gentleman? Mm -hmm. Martin Seligman, S-E-L-I-G-M-A-N. He did all the studies on optimism and pessimism in the workforce back in the 80s with MetLife, et cetera. And you can easily find him on YouTube. YouTube. Very right. famous man. Right. That's that's amazing. Um, so you start with knowing who you are because that, I mean, business is not the end, right? It's the means to the end. And really what you really want is your life, the way you want to live it. Yeah, I think the end is what do you want to leave behind. Right. 
so in between, you know, it, it, it's it's the dash, right? You always see on somebody's obituary, Carrie Strain, 1956 dash, we hope 2050, right? Right. So it's always the dash. What's the story in your life? What do you want to be known for? What is it you want to bring to others? Once you get what you, you, you always think, once I get what I want, then I can focus on others. No, once you make sure others get what they want, you'll get everything you want right. if you have the right strategy. Right. So we, we call it building a culture of yes uh, in your organization where people give a tentative yes to ideas. They're willing to try. They're not afraid to fail because there's a culture of you, everybody, you, ethos, and systems. And if we have systems to guide us and we love the mission and we learn not to judge others and we learn to forgive others because people are people and we are who we are. And if we learn to recognize and appreciate the way others communicate and if it's different than ours we adapt to them to make sure the doorways of communication stay open then we're going to learn about them we're going to find out that we share the same goals and objectives and we're going to work together to accomplish and experience the fulfillment that we're looking for that's that's the key role of the ceo is to understand himself or herself to grow like-minded leaders so we accomplish the vision and deliver on the mission for whatever size business that is. Gosh, I had, a, I had a, one of my most incredible success stories was this doctor up in Washington State. Her goal was to retire with $2 million so she could move back to Western Europe with her husband. Never was it necessary for her to produce more than $50,000 a year. Because when she produced and collected fifty thousand a year with a fifty percent overhead, she had twenty five percent, twenty five thousand dollars net, fifty percent. Uh, and we broke that twenty five thousand dollars net into three categories: taxes, eighty three hundred; lifestyle, eighty three hundred; retirement, eighty three hundred. Fourteen years later, son graduates from high school. Off and at him. Everybody's got a different set of goals. We've got to figure out what that is and then develop a strategy that fits for them. So I do a lot of work with large DSOs and MSOs, and tomorrow morning I'll be flying to Atlanta for one of the largest specialty group meetings in the, in the nation. Tomorrow night, our largest, one of our largest, our largest specialty clients, over 20 locations, and they're building an MSO, and then off the next day to visit a prospective client up the eastern seaboard that's got 48 locations. These are fun things to talk about, meeting with private equity firms. That's exciting. I just got off the phone with a client of mine in Texas who's thinking about selling to a, a very large DSO in the model, and it works for her. It's a great model. But bigger isn't better. Everybody's got to find out, how much time do I want to invest in my business? How much money do I want to make? And as long as we meet that at a minimum, everything else is gravy. Right. Now, let me ask you this. I'm sure you know people are different, right? I mean, you said you've trained, what, 6,000 practices and you know tens of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you think about people and, you know, whether it's a dentist or his team, like, how do you kind of fit the pieces together? Well, we work with our clients in two steps. First is initial services, where we um, need to find out everything we can about what the practice owner wants, also what the team wants. 
This is their career. This is their, their home. They have ownership in this as well. So we send out our welcome letter and our document request list. And sure, I get financial statements and production by ADA code and the policy manual and find out if they have huddles and staff meetings and training sessions and blah, blah, blah. All the mechanics, right? Right. That's the bricks. Then i got to find out about the mortar. That's the people. What do they want? Do they feel connected with one another? In the last week, has somebody given them any praise for the work they've done? You know what? Most often it says no, and which flies in the face of performance management theory. Right. A lot of doctors, I would say, I'd say a vast majority of the doctors, when they call me and they want to move the staff into action, think they can do it with money. And and really, that's that's not a driver. Right. I mean, if it was a driver, everybody'd work another 15 hours a week on the weekend to target it and make another 20 grand a year, right? Right. If you want to improve the performance of others, I don't care if it's at home or at work, you need to understand the concepts of performance management theory. We actually have a workshop coming up called the Performance Driven CEO and Management Team in Pebble Beach. It'll be fun, but there's three ways to increase the performance of people. Number one is negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement. Have you ever had someone say to you, please be home by 6 so we can leave here on time? You ever had that happen? Yeah. And you know what's going to happen if you're not home at 6? You're going to get a can of whoop-ass opened on you, right? Right. Yeah. So to avoid that negative reinforcement, you're home at 6, right? Too often people hire someone at the front desk and say, you know, Susan, I've hired you here to be my scheduler, and if you don't give me the five grand a day, I'm going to question whether or not I can keep you, and that's not very effective. Do you think right. that creates a safe environment for that employee? No. no. And and Abraham Maslow and his theories on the hierarchy of needs say, if we don't feel safety, belonging, and mattering, we're never going to really contribute because we're stuck all the time, right? Right. So that throw that theory away. That's not going to be any good. So the other two 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 strategies to increase performance are, are economic rewards, certainly, but it's not happening quick enough. You know, at best, you're going to have a bonus plan that pays on the 15th of the following month. So the work we do here on February 1st isn't necessarily going to be rewarded till March 15th, and by the time they get the $48 bonus check, or 148 or $248 or $548, it's kind of hard to link that reward to the behavior that was performed, so it gets fuzzy. So the best way is through positive reinforcement. Immediate is most impactful. So if I see you performing the specific behaviors we've trained on that I've reminded you to do in the huddle, and I come into the operatory or I see administrative you do it, I said, my God, that was incredible. And you've got to be really good at giving it authentically, doctors, is what I tell them. And you can never, you can never do the sandwich praise, which is one positive, one negative, one positive, because any time you pair a negative with a positive, it kills the positive. Right. So immediate is most powerful. If we can't do it immediately, then, of course, at the morning huddle, the first half of it's going to be looking at the previous day's behaviors, the things they did, and literally letting them know individually, objectively and descriptively, that they did a great job. We had three perio conversion candidates. You did an excellent job conveying that. Two of them moved into our non-surgical perio program. Outstanding. You assistant, we had seven unscheduled patient, family members of patients that came in that day. We got five of those people to reappoint. Phenomenal. We, administratively, you collected all the copayment. 
You made 10 reactivation calls, got three people back. I can't thank you enough. You see how I'm drilling down to objective data? Right. It doesn't do any good to say, God, we had a good day yesterday, kumbaya. You just can't say that. That's, that's, nobody understands what it is that they did. Right. And therefore, you're not going to shape the behavior of the performer because you're an incompetent reinforcer. And we need to get people clear that immediate is best, daily is second best, weekly is third best. So that's why we've set up the strain management system and policies to be able to identify what can be done immediately. You need to learn those behaviors. What needs to be done by following our huddle checklist every day that's uniquely crafted for that practice, and as is the weekly staff meeting agenda, and biweekly isn't frequent enough. Because if we wait longer than a week to give positive reinforcement for a behavior performed, it has no meaning in the, theory, in the world of performance management theory. Right. And we are performance management experts, and I want to grow experts in performance management. See, you know, the, the staff members, they're not responsible for the attainment of goals. If we're, I just saw an, an advertisement by a consultant who I, I've known for 30 years, and she said, you know, goals, uh, res, let's develop a results-driven team. No, no, you want a behavior-driven team. The employees, if they're left alone to determine which behaviors are going to drive results, might choose behaviors that are contrary to the mission of the practice just to get a result. That's not smart because right. you might have patient attrition or employee attrition. You'll certainly have discretionary behavior at the operating level of your practice. Hence, we need to have behavior-driven people knowing exactly what to say and do because an owner is tending to the development of the operating policies that are the curriculum for employees to learn, and the management system reinforces the implementation of. So when pe people perform it, you're aligning their efforts to accomplish the vision and deliver on the mission. And if we achieve the goals of the practice, then the system was designed right. If we, through, adequate, through appropriate application of the behavior, don't accomplish the, the goals, it was flawed in the design. That's an owner's mistake, and that's why we have to step in and help them. So everything starts with the vision and then the mission, right? So yeah. can you give me some color, like explain to you? I mean, everybody does dentistry, so how, how does this become specific to me? Well, you know, I, I think there's many different styles or varieties of dental services available. I was just on the phone with a doctor in Massachusetts who's got a very traditional cosmetic practice. And before the economic meltdown of 2008, certainly there were a lot of people that have equity in homes where they could borrow on their line of credits to invest in full mouth reconstruction or big cosmetic cases, right? Right. And they didn't have any more income. They just had equity they were capitalizing on. Then they lost all that. In, eight, in 2010, there was a stock market meltdown, although they told us it's come back by now as there's record highs in the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ, right? But I think doctors today, um, instead of just being cosmetic or just general dental bread and butter like it was before 2008, I think we certainly have the general dental type practice who's, who's uh, a traditionalist, crowns, fillings, referring out endo, implants, those types of things, and that's just a unique style, their philosophy. A lot of our clients do implants. Some of them do permanent denture-supported implants. We have leading, leading um, lectures in the world that are our clients. Some do ortho, some do oral surgery, some have a GP with an overlay of all the specialists. Or you know, There's all different styles. You have to get to know that one 
doctor's clinical philosophy because that's the way they think and that's the way they act. Once we know that, then we have to say, okay, now we need patients. Now I'm speaking of general dentists. So when I develop my business strategies to help support the vision, and the vision is broad-based. Goals are broad-based. I want to have five operatories with a full complement of patients to work four to four and a half days a week and take off three weeks a year. And I want to make sure that I work 36 hours a week and net 550 grand a year. That's a big vision goal, right? Right. Start with that. So in other words, what do you want? And then you turn around and figure out start. Now, if he says for you to get what you want, like you mentioned earlier, others have to get what they want. Your team has to get what they want. Your patients have to get what they want. And only then you will get what you want. Correct. And so then we have to assess how many, you know, we we always say there's four components um, to your business plan. Number one is your facility. How many operatories? What part of town? What type of technology? Those types of things. Mm-hmm. Number two is patients. We we believe that a dentist for every one hour they work should be supported by two hours of hygiene. So we have okay. our patient base. We believe in active patients and appointed patient. And for every six hundred patients, you're going to need a full time hygienist. And and by the way, every practice does have a maximum number of patients they can manage. Have you ever heard of that equation? Every practice has a maximum number of patients they can manage. Here's the equation. Every practice has a maximum number of patients yeah, they can manage. there's a maximum. Yeah, I mean, think about it. How many ounces of water can you get in a 12-ounce can? How many ounces of water? 12, right. yeah. Who, who, who's married in Grant's tomb? Grant. When right. was the War of 1812? 1812. How many patients can you manage? It's equal to how many people you can fit into your hygiene department. Right. Why would you want to have volumes more patients of record that you can't see in hygiene? You'd almost be failing them in your commitment because they, to them because they, by default they're abandoned. And if you've got five treatment rooms and you're saying, I want to have two for hygiene, why would you only have one hygienist? Sure, he's only going to be able to see 600 patients. I mean, think about it. Eight patients a day for the average hygienist, 200 days a year, 1,600 appointments. If the average patient comes two and a half times, I mean, that's 600 people. So if that's the capacity, 600 patients today are going to generate somewhere between 500 to $750,000 worth of annual revenue for the practice. And that's going to vary based on fees charged and treatment plans driven. Right. And that's not enough production to generate the collections, to fund the overhead, to make that doctor's personal model come to life. But two hygienists well. If we're pushing out somewhere between 1.2 and 1.5 million in production and collecting 90% or more of it, and you know that's a challenging concept today with changes in dental reimbursement happening all over the country. I was just at the Yankee in January lecturing, and there's quite a change going on uh, in their insurance reimbursement programs in, in New England for those people that are in network, and they all know about that. But if you're producing a million five and collecting a million four, your overhead should be running about 750 to 800 before any discretionary expenses are paid because you, you, when I look at the P&Ls of the doctors, we look at them and they see golf clubs and the supplies expense and swing sets and trips to Disneyland. And I understand, you know, what they're trying to do and, 
and minimize tax obligations. But you know, we, when we look at true expenses, you should be at about 50% of production before you know of your of your EBITDA, right? And you know, um, EBITDA is an acronym for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, and in this case, it's EBITDA plus doctor comp. So EBITDA plus doctor comp before doctor comp should be around 50% of production. It's it's not too hard to get there of production. Okay, and if our collection rate's 90% and my production was 100 and I had 50% overhead and a 10% off, my net cash flow is going to be 40% before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, and doctor comp, and 40% of a million five should easily push out 600 grand a year. And if a doctor can't live on 600 grand a year, we got a real spending problem. Right. And in some cases, we do. Mm-hmm. Because we have a lack of alignment between the owner and their partner, married couple or not. And if we have, I mean, one of the things that we start with is personal budgeting as well. And I ask, what are some of the goals you have? Oftentimes it's to get an agreement on the financial goals of my family with my partner. These things are causing stress. And if I don't have a plan that deals with solving that issue and getting agreement, then we have, you know, financial terrorism going on in the relationship and we have to solve that as well. Otherwise, there's no business owner that can think accurately if he's got a conflict at home and, and we need them to be freed up so they can be the best they can be for their patients. So when we look at building the plan, we, we, we build with the assumption that we're going to get to two hygienists per doctor. And in some cases, we have clients that have three hygienists per doctor, although that's not uh, accomplishable in some states due to the Dental Practice Act that limit them to two hygienists per doctor. But that's okay. We work we work within the laws as much as always, period. And then once we have that patient flow and we look at the treatment planning philosophy of the doctor, we can project, project out what they're going to produce with that number of patient and continuing care. We can project out the collection rate, project out the overhead, and determine if the model is going to work for them. And it either passes or fails. If it passes economically, then we can commit to it with gusto. If it fails, well, we've got to go back to the drawing board. Right. So everything is connected, right? So typically, when you work with a client, like how does it start? Do you do an assessment, or like we we send, we have our initial services, as I alluded to before. We prepare our comprehensive analysis, which looks at the patient base, the staff, the operations, the policies they have in place, the facility, and the economics of the practice and the personal life of the owner. Once we have the comprehensive practice analysis done, the consultant's ready to go on site, and they spend two and a half days with each client. They get on site day one, they visit the practice late afternoon, they've typically flown in. I have client consultants that work for me, there are strain consulting employees all over the United States, and we have, on the, in every time zone, we have somebody living and work for strain, and they've gone through a three-year certification process with my director of training, where they have to report to him every day for three years to make sure that they know how to write up a strategic plan and type up an email and a memo and communicate accurately. And and we coach them. It takes time to learn that. But the consultants go on site, and the first night they're having dinner with the doctor, getting to know them. The next day, they observe in the morning, seeing how that practice interacts with each other and with the patients, how they serve. That afternoon, there's a team meeting. It's a four-hour team meeting. And it's there that we share with each other what our goals are, what the owner's goals are. And many times we have to sanitize these, right? And I want to make sure that this person blankety blank, blank, blank. We have to turn, in there, turn, turn that into, we desire to create teamwork. Right? That's sanitizing because it goes both ways. And so when we're 
conducting that meeting with the team, we, we want them to, to be civil. And we make sure we lead with that commitment to the golden rule, right? And that afternoon, so the four hours, we talk about what our mutual goals are. We look at what we've accomplished, and we talk about what we need to accomplish in order to get what we all want. And that's going to require change, right? If we keep doing what we're doing, we'll keep getting what we're getting. Right. If, we, if we want to get something different, the doctor needs to employ, employ a different management system because the management system, the way they're leading, monitoring, and coaching the implementation of the behaviors that they've trained on in some fashion is getting the current outcome. If they want a new result, they have to commit to a new way of leading and coaching and monitoring, right? The current system is flawed. Maybe even the policies are flawed, but we begin with the system. And if when we talk on that day one about implementing something different, that's the big C word. Do you know what the big C word is? No. Change. We've got to change. Right. And so if we're going to change, each one of us is going to have a response to change. And that's where we teach about everyone's unique behavioral style. You know, behaviors, neutral, behavioral styles are neutral. There's no right or wrong. But there just is, and each person has a different way they emotionally respond to conflict or differences. And if we're going to change, we're going to have differences. You know, there's there's conflict uh, occurs when there's a difference between goals, values, behavior, or emotions. And there's five ways to solve conflict. You know, three A's, two C's. Let me see if I can remember. I could avoid you. I could be you know aggressive. So you better. Or I could accommodate you. Neither of which is going to solve it, right? They all have their unintended consequences. And with the two C's, I could compromise to you. And how are you going to feel if all you always compromise to me? Resentful? Right. So I guess we better collaborate. It's not about who's right. It's what's right. What's the vision? Hmm. What's the mission? Hmm. What's my job? What's the policy say? Hmm. How did I see it? Hmm. And that's how we start to solve conflict. But we have to be willing to. And when we understand behaviorally who we are, and we understand our our preferences, our strengths versus our weakness. Then, then we can understand the why behind how we're communicating. Fifty-five percent body language, thirty-eight percent tone and pace, seven percent—that's all that words are—and and start to look at each other with an eye of appreciation and cooperation so we can learn the behaviors necessary to accomplish the new. And so that's what occurs that first day. And what we strive for is to have everyone feel safe. Because, my God, when a consultant gets hired, it's like tonight if you go home and your wife meets you at the, at the house and says, Pumpkin, guess where we're going? She go, and you go, where? We're going to marriage counseling. What's the connotation? <laughs> Some problems, in yeah, we got problems in paradise. You're, you know, so what happens when a doctor hires a consultant? Staff are wrong? We don't want to feel that. The owner is the one who's got to accept the responsibility for where we've been and where we're going. Uh, I was in Buffalo not too long ago, and we were talking about giving people positive reinforcement, attention, approval, and appreciation. And this owner, great, great leader, he said, I have to tell you, we're a great practice, but there's about 140 of you I, I owe a big apology to. I have not let you know how impactful you are in my life. And at that moment, you could hear a pin drop.
and he looked at one woman in the audience who'd gone through some personal challenges, and he said, the last year, he said, you know, you showed up for work every day. You always had a smile. You were going through so much, and I've got it easy. I don't have the courage to do what you've done, and I'm so great. And the tears were coming down this giant of a man's eyes. That That was a meaningful moment. I challenge your listeners to think about how authentic they're being with their team, which is right. human. So that day one is about, you know, letting everybody know it's okay for us to be part of a great team that commits to change. It's safe here. Let's do it together. Nobody's going to be judged. If anybody's to be faulted, it's the owner for the system they've implemented. Then that night, the consultant goes to dinner with the client, and they set forth the short-term benchmarks. What's our reappointment rate going to be on hygiene? If we're a specialist, how many doctors are we going to meet with a week, uh, on a weekly basis to go out and promote our practice? How many study clubs are we going to have? Because we have all the specialists as well as GPs all over the board. We have so many clients. And so that being said, we, we've, we've got to figure out how many patients are we going to have in continuing care as a GP? What percentage are going to be in perio? That takes a little bit more work. What is our daily fill rate? What's our production goal? What's our collection percentage? Our missed appointment rates, our case acceptance rates, all those KPIs or those benchmarks that move us towards the accomplishment of the goal, right? And even reappointment rate and ultimately new patient flow. And if it's a startup practice, it's all new patient flow. Right. So that, that sets the benchmarks. Then we have to say, well, if we're not achieving those now, we're going to have to commit to the development of and the training on the policies we're going to create, which will list out the behaviors. We've got to keep this pretty basic but straightforward so that when we move people through the system of training, leading, and monitoring, they know what to do. So that night, we're setting all that forth with the doctor, and the last day we have a four-hour team meeting to say, gang, here's where we are, but here are the benchmarks we set, and here's why. They've got to believe them then here's the way we're going to come together and get orchestrated so we understand how to identify opportunities to solve challenges on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. And this is how we monitor our performance so we can see what's working, celebrate it, and what's not so we can provide the training to get to the celebration moment. And if we keep approaching it like that and then build underneath the owner a department-by-department leader. We call them department facilitators. Everybody's a leader. Gosh, that's that's just a given. And there's no department heads like talking heads. It's department facilitator. And I don't like department manager in small practices because the reality is people don't even know what that title means. But a facilitator right. in my hygiene department understands our continuing care policy and can facilitate not only the official training, but the ongoing support to the hygienist throughout the day. My assistant department facilitator can support the, the ongoing learning after initial training of the new patient policy, the radiographic policy, and the problem-focused patient policy. And my administrative department facilitator can, other than official training, working with the strain practice development coaching consultant, they can be responsible for the financial policy, the scheduling policy, the confirmation late patient missed appointment reactivation policies so that the people that are implementing these have somebody to go to to help them understand what to do specifically throughout the day. We can decentralize this coaching into a team underneath the manager slash owner because as much as they don't want the title, the reality is they're the parent in the relationship. Until we have enough people to warrant hiring a professional manager, it's nothing more than a title that can be destructive. 
Right. So when we get done with our two and a half days on site, we know the goals, we know the vision statement, we know the mission statement, we know the short-term benchmarks, we've got the huddle checklist in place and its corresponding tools, the weekly staff meeting agenda in place, the monthly department facilitator meeting in place. So we've created communication moments that hasn't that haven't been committed to. I mean, only 15% of practices have huddle, fewer than 5% have a weekly staff meeting, and none of them have a department facilitator meeting. But if we create these communication in parentheses, engagement moments, we're going to create engagement in the workforce. And it's not going to happen overnight. I was just reading an email from a client of mine who owns a bunch of practices in Columbia, South Carolina. And he said, you know, I, never, I remember every day that you, what you said, you can't microwave the development of commitment and people. You got to put them in the oven and let it bake. Mm-hmm. So the, the flaw... The development of commitment and people. Yeah, that's a great quote. So we, we start with, these are conclude our initial services. And for all that, it takes about four to six weeks to get the comprehensive practice analysis done schedule on site and if we're doing a one location practice you know that's how we do it if we're dealing with five locations or more we typically do a group meeting for day one i was just in west virginia with a very large oral surgery group in charleston and we did a group meeting like a week ago monday we could go today and uh or we could go uh tomorrow morning actually and then my team went out and did the individual launches for the day two in the field so we often with our five or location or more practices have a a team meeting, bringing everybody together for a four-hour meeting is day one. It's it's a very fun event because owners get to uh, really share with the team that it's their goal to create a loving environment for team members to join with them on. And that that's the beginning of a great journey. After that, we move into what we call our month-to-month continuing services. And um, that includes daily uh, access for the doctor and all team members to the consultant who just visited them me as the owner of the company, but also we have a practice development coach based out of our corporate office in Sacramento that follows up with the team, the department facilitators every day, monitoring and communicating by email. And for monitoring, we either collect data's data by manually driven or we have the ability with software vendors out there that we've created relationships with to sweep all the data we want uh, through data analytics programs and uh, help put the strain management system into place for those doctors. Um, there's weekly training between our practice development coaches and those department facilitators so they understand how to use the management systems and apply the principles. And After training, the doctor gets an email of what was the training program. Consultant and the doctor keep their fingers on the pulse of the execution on a weekly and monthly basis, and consultants are back in for a reset day every, every six months. And, and we do all of that. It's the highest level of touch there is. Our initial services, um, you know, we can launch a practice for the initial services in the first two and a half days for approximately $5,000. And then after that, our month-to-month fee is uh, $19.95 a month, and the client pays for unique travel. But other than that, it's all included. And any client can end the relationship with 30 days' notice. What I wanted to do was provide the highest level of customization uh, and design of the management systems and operating policies around the unique owner's philosophies and goals and do that with the most reasonable fee in dentistry with the least amount of contractual obligation and month-to-month basis does it all and that's our value proposition and why we work with close to 400 practices this is an amazing journey so you started out as a accountant who 
was just having this accidental conversation. And then through your own life journey, you started helping others, especially dentists. Divine intervention, you know, divine intervention. I can think of back in the 80s, um, meeting with an oral surgeon in Yuba City, California, in Marysville, Yuba City. And he was a phenomenal man. His name was Jeff Polly. And uh, he said, you know, I'm an outsider here. I'm from Kentucky. And he sounded like he was from Kentucky, you know. And he was in a town of of dentists that all graduated from most of them from you know UOP, and he, there was another UOP surgeon who was a great guy, but there wasn't any demographic intimacy with a guy from Kentucky, right? Mm-hmm. He had to do it harder and greater, and he unfortunately years went by. He passed away at a very young age, and you know I was never more impressed than the the work of that other resident in town oral surgeon who treated his the competitor with such grace and respect and a transition to take care of his patients and take care of the family. It was an amazing story. Dentists are amazing people. They really have just kind hearts and they're thrust into the business world ignorant of what to do and they typically just grow a business to meet some basic economic level of expectation that they have and unfortunately they never grow to their potential. And then I see a lot of dentists who ended up who end up working for the business, not the other way around. Now, if you do the math, a lot of times the math doesn't add up. <clears throat> you know the loans and the <clears throat> all the commitments they have. It, it, you know, today more than ever, you know, yeah. um, there are opportunities available to dentists to work for um, corporately owned groups, and right. that's not a bad option. Especially to the recent dental graduate who's facing $500,000 in student loans and doesn't want the challenges and maybe can't even borrow the money to set up a startup practice for $600,000 and maybe working for a Heartland or an Aspen or North American Dental Group or one of the big ones is a great thing to do. Pacific, those those businesses are successful because, uh, you know, and I've worked for some of them, not all of them, but they, they have good hearts. They're trying to build a model that attracts and retains quality people that like the offering that they make. There's, it's, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. And I've seen a lot of associates have very successful, purposeful careers in a group format. There's nothing wrong with it. Everybody's got to just find out what, uh, what, what, what fits for them. Right. Right. Because, yeah, being an entrepreneur and doing your own thing is not easy. There's so much learning and so much you know, growing up to do because you don't learn these things in school. Well, we don't. I, I Like I said, I have a degree in accounting. They didn't teach me. And, and you, you know, you can't abdicate what you don't know by definition, right? Right. I can't abdicate speaking Chinese to you. I don't even know if you would be doing it. I don't speak Chinese. I You can't abdicate the management of your business if you don't know what management is. Right. We want to take the guesswork out of that process, number one. And number two, we don't want our clients to feel alone. That's why they have unlimited access to me and my team. Um, back when I had my accounting firm, nobody wanted to call me because the, the meter was running. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm going to build a dental consulting firm where the meter never runs. Your hourly rate just goes down the more you're in contact with us. Right. And it's a good model. It's a win-win model, right? Where they win and you win because of it. 
I'm very happy. I, and I have the greatest team on earth. I mean, these people are, they, they, they love their clients. They love what they do. And I love the fact that they love that. I love them. They're amazing people that we work with. It's amazing. Um, Anything else you want to share with as final thoughts, Kerry? I, you know, I was talking to one of my clients in Chicago, Dr. Gracias, the other day. She says, if you want to live to be 100, there's two things you have to do. Floss and keep working. <laughs> and I find, I find nothing in life that I've observed gives any human more understanding of purpose than to being in healthcare. Right. Whether it's a physician, a dentist, a veterinarian, you know, you, you get to help someone's lives in ways that you never imagined. And if we can help people understand the business basics that go along with ownership, that support their clinical purpose, then we we can help them make sure that the obstructions that occur on the journey, and they do, the obstacles in our path can be dealt with accurately. You know, the key to resilience isn't just op- is not optimistic thinking, it's accurate thinking. And if we can manage the way we talk to ourselves when faced with an adversity, learn how to see the issue, solve the problem, move through it, we can do so with the least amount of effort to manage adversity. We call that practical intelligence. And the longer you're committed to it, the better you'll be. So we just wish for everybody to have the, the true fulfillment that they're going to experience flow to them in a way that causes them to always think back on their career with appreciation that they were given an opportunity based on something that happened in their childhood that guided them to be good students, to learn how to get in the, 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 the things they learned in school, to qualify to get into health care, whether they're hygienists, assistants, administrators, doctors, and, a, and have a level of accomplishment that then becomes the beginning for serving. And if we can help them on that journey, then we're all going to feel fun, fulfillment, and financial reward. But we're only going to you know, need the financial reward up until our wants are satisfied. And, you know, too often I see people that, you know, they make more money than they've ever dreamed of. And then they ask, well, what else can I do to experience fulfillment? Why not keep, why not keep serving? Open your days for free in your practice. You're best at that. You may not be a good enough cook to go down and work at Lowe's and Fishes. You might not even be good at doing dirty dishes, but you're a heck of a healthcare provider. Why not open your practice and help people that can't afford it and keep serving? You're best at that. So, you know, there's a journey. Let's develop a plan. And, you know, if anybody's looking for any help to do that, they can contact my office or go to the Strain website. We're glad to chat with them and spend an hour or two with them just talking about where they are and where they want to go. We offer that to people at no cost every day, and we'd love to do it with your audience as well. And uh, the website, it's strain.com, right? Can you spell that for our audience, please? Sure, strain, like train with an S on the front and E on the end, S-T-R-A-I-N-E. And if anybody wants to just get on the phone with me and spend an hour, send an email to Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, Stephanie at strain.com. And she'll get back to you and schedule a time to chat with me. If you own a practice, she'll have you fill out a strain survey. We'll prepare a practice analysis for your practice and talk about it. If you're thinking about buying a practice, let's talk about that. If you just want to talk about your career and where life's going, or you just want somebody to talk to, 
get a hold of Stephanie. She'll get you my calendar. I'm here to talk to you about whatever it is you want to talk about. You're very generous, Kerry. I think um, that's why you've been here for 30 years. Uh, so um, you know, keep doing what you're doing. And, uh... Well, I've, we've set a tentative retirement date. It's uh, just a little less than 20 years from now when I turn 80. Oh. <laughs> so I'll step down as president and just be chairman of the board so I don't have to travel so much. But, you know, I love what I do. I, I can't wait to be in Atlanta tomorrow. I love I love that. I can't wait to be in North Carolina on Thursday, and I can't wait to come home on Thursday night. And next week I get to be in Reno and then in San Francisco. And, you know, I'm just blessed to be in an industry where I get the chance to meet, like you, the greatest people on earth. And I'm so grateful that you reached out to us and found us and invited me to, you know, share our story. And, and hopefully that with your mission and vision, you'll continue to meet um, – Far better presenters than me, and far you know, and people. I don't know that you meet anybody that loves people as much as I do, but you know, if you keep being a channel of, be a channel of hope for people. Napoleon had a great line: "Leaders are dealers of hope, and leaders they know the future, so they can bring other others to that safe place." So appreciate being on the call, and I wish all your listeners all the success and joy, love and fulfillment that they deserve, and let's just make the world a better place. Thank you, Kerry. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you very much for your time today. I know you're a busy person, so I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, you know doing this for us and our listeners. Uh, so anybody who wants to get a hold of uh, Kerry, you can email Stephanie at strain.com uh, or just go to the website, and I'm sure there will be lots of information. You certainly will. Strain.com. Thank you Once so again, much. Every, thank you very much. Once again, everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Growing Dentist. Have a wonderful day.